Actually, that gave me a good idea to look out into the crowd to see if the person I'm going to talk about is here. It appears he is not. But anyway, no, he is. Ah, he's here. Never mind. So, um, so you know this story is true. A few months ago, I was invited to one of our parishioners' uh, 94th birthdays, and it was a big event. I mean, he turned 94. That's a big deal. And now in this particular family, they informed me that they don't celebrate Christmas together, they don't celebrate Easter together, or any other time of the year, but on his birthday, everyone comes together. It's like the family reunion all rolled into one, and it's always about his birthday. Pretty awesome, I think. I mean, every year, it's like, wow, this is a huge accomplishment, and they're all there for it. So, not saying that you have to start that in your own family, but... They do it in theirs, and I like it. So, anyway, we were at his birthday dinner, and uh, it was a very long table because there was a lot of people. Um, the man is responsible for many lives in this world, so they were all there with their, their spouses, and again, big table. We were not all sitting on one side like Jesus, um, but I could not see the people down towards the end. That was a Last Supper joke, guys. Come on. They were all sitting on one side of the table in the picture. Please drink more coffee before I preach. <laughs> so anyway, the long table, I can't see who's, who's uh, down at the end, but as everyone in America does, we sing happy birthday at some point in the evening, and after the song, one of the people that I can't see very enthusiastically decides to yell out, and many more years, to which the birthday man replied, Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> what a contradiction. The well-wisher versus the reality of the situation. Contradiction. In the, the readings today, there's a lot of contradiction. In the first reading, we have Abraham, who, well, right now, he's just Abram. But we have, who will be Abraham, the septuagenarian who is told to go and start his entire life over again at the age of 75. No one at the age of 75 imagines starting their life over again, I think. I don't know. I'll let you know when I get there. In the second reading, we have Paul talking about life coming from death. That's not how this works. You don't get life from death. Another contradiction. In the gospel, there's two, one minor and one major. The first minor is that it talks about as Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are on this mountain, there comes a bright cloud that casts a shadow. Explain that one to me, science. This flame right in front of me does not cast a shadow. It emits light, no shadow. How does this bright cloud emit a shadow? I don't know. But the one that I want to talk about in the gospel, the bigger contradiction, is the fact that Jesus shows Peter, James, and John his glorified, post-resurrection, transfigured body. And then he tells them not to tell anyone about it. He shows them, he proves to them that he is indeed who he says he is, but then makes them keep it a secret. What a contradiction. And, and it's terrible because in their minds, I know what they're thinking. I know that they are just so amped up about this. And I mean, we even get Peter. He's like, this is amazing. Let's stay forever. We'll set up camp. But they're thinking, 
if people saw what we just saw, if they knew what we knew, they would believe in you, Lord, like we believe in you. And they would never stop believing in you, like we're never going to stop believing in you. Except there's kind of a couple problems with that. The first of which, well, so a couple days ago in Mass, at Daily Mass, it was actually Wednesday, I know, because I was at the school talking to the children about this, so if there's any school children here, you're going to hear the same homily twice. But um, the people of that gospel reading that day are like, hey, Jesus, it's really cool that you're here. Also, what magic tricks can you do? Can you, like, do something to prove that you're the Messiah? And he gets mad and he says, look, you evil generation, I'm not doing anything for you because I have already done many signs and wonders, so you get no more signs until the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale, three days in the tomb, and then resurrecting. But at this point, as I've already reminded the school children last week, Jesus has raised the dead, he's cured the sick, he's cured the lime, the lame, everyone that needed him, he has done miracles for, he has produced food for 5,000 people out of two fish and a couple loaves. I mean, like, how much more do they want him to do to prove that he is who they say, or who he says he is? But they want more and more and more. So even though they've seen the glory of God revealed, it's just not enough. And they're like, cool, but what else can you do now? And the second thing wrong with the thought that they would never believe, or they would never stop believing if they saw the transfiguration, is that Peter, James, and John, right, out of, out of the three people that were there, two of them abandoned Jesus during his passion. They knew, they saw, they believed, and they ran. And it's not just like these were the random guys that Jesus was like, uh, you three, let's go today. No, no, no. Out of all of the people, the men and the women that followed Jesus, 72 were chosen and they were sent out. They did a great job. They came back. Out of those 72, 12 were then chosen further to be the apostles. Those were Jesus' closest squad, his group of people. And then out of those 12, this is Peter, James, and John. They have a place of preeminence. They have, like, those were his best friends. I know, like, parents like to say, I love all of my children equally. Now, Jesus had his favorite, Peter, James, and John. It's very clear. He brings them into all of these wonderful and terrifying situations. He brings them into the room when he raises the little girl from the dead. He brings them up on the mountain when he gets transfigured. He brings them to these places. He brings them to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's in his worst passion ever, and he wants his closest friends near him, he leaves the rest of the 12, and he says, you guys come a little further with me. They were clearly his favorite, and two out of the three still abandoned him, even though they had seen everything that he had done. And even with this inevitable betrayal that he knew was coming, he still encourages all of them. He encourages the three specifically right now in the gospel today. And I, I don't know what it's like to see the, the glorified post-resurrection body of Christ. I don't know what it's like to see someone transfigured. It's probably pretty cool. But that doesn't really translate to my life a lot because I don't get it. I was not there. But here's part of the gospel that does resonate with me because I can understand this. It says, whoop, where'd it go? There we go. 
It says, but Jesus came and touched them and said, do not be afraid. Now, I don't know what a post-resurrection body looks like, but I know what it's like to be afraid. And I also know what it's like to have someone I love and I trust come up to me and place their hand on my shoulder and tell me it's going to be okay. So for me, that, that just hit me from the gospel. Like, wow, Jesus has done this huge thing of divinity, and then he does something so simple in humanity. What a beautiful dichotomy. What a beautiful balance. He's revealed his glory, and then he reassures them through the simplest form of human communication possible, a touch. So, what does that mean for us now? Well, it means the same thing that it meant for the disciples. Do not be afraid. This second Sunday of Lent, I want you to ponder what you're afraid of. For some, it's very easy because it's with them every single day from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. The first thing they think about, you open your eyes and you're like, oh, yep, there it is. And before you're falling asleep, that's the last thing you're worrying about. Other people, not so much. Carely have a, a fair... I can't speak English, I'm sorry, let me try over. They barely have a care in the world. But they're still afraid of something. I guarantee you. Know how I know? Because they're human. They're afraid of something, big or little. But this week I want you to take time with your fear. Because it's okay that we're afraid of things. Like that's, that's what it means to be human. It's just like it's okay to be tempted. That's okay. That's what it means to be human. But we don't have to give in to temptation or fear, which are often sometimes the same. The fear, the temptation to fear and to not trust God. And by spending time with our fear, we can examine it. We can look at it. We can say, okay, well, what is it that I'm afraid of? Why am I afraid of that? And then if we aren't able to self-help our way out of this, you know, situation, that's okay because we don't have to have all the answers. Jesus tells the disciples, do not be afraid today. And that's exactly what I want you to do after you've spent time with your fear. Normally when I talk about fear and anxiety and problems, I say, just repeat the phrase, Jesus, I trust in you. But it's Lent, so we change things in Lent. We change the, the vestments, the colors, the flowers, there are none. So I'm going to change it up in Lent. Instead of, Jesus, I trust in you, I want you to sit with your fear. When you realize what you're afraid of, again, it might be very easy, I want you to take time to imagine Jesus just right with you. And just putting his hand on your shoulder and just saying, don't be afraid. I got this. I mean, like, how comforting is that? Looking at Jesus, his face, the God of the universe, telling you not to be afraid. And just think of how confident that smile that his face has to have. Right? Like, how confident the God of the universe is like, dude, I made everything. Don't worry about it. I got you. At least in my head, that's how it is. Jesus is a pretty confident dude in my head. And I hope he is in yours too. Because after we've spent time with fear, it's good that we recognize it. We can't stay there. We have to move past that. We have to allow Jesus to be who he says he is because he's already revealed it to the disciples. He's revealed it to us in the fact that we have the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ to be given to us, to be received every single Sunday that we're here. That should instill us with all of the confidence in the world. So, the second Sunday of Lent, take time with your fears.
then always remember, do not be afraid. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is literally nothing that he cannot handle. And we shouldn't be afraid of anything.